You're listening to your favorite movie podcast, The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. This time brought to you by actual humans. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm sorry i'm andy beacon <laughs> i suddenly got distracted by finding a pouch on my uh, desk which had me uh, doctor who cufflinks all oh, right okay you want to leave that in <laughs> i mean the podcast listeners can get that little bit of extra <laughs> <laughs> i thought you'd forgotten because it's been a week since uh, since we uh, we did one of these so if you are a regular listener who was. <laughs> if you're a regular listener to the pod then you'll have realized last week was one of those uh what do they call them in TV terms when they uh, just do an episode based around a bottle flashback? episode? No, a um, bottle episode. Yeah, that's it, it, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's where you yeah. just use flashbacks to pass things. Yeah, or <laughs> just have a have it uh, have just the the cast, the main cast in. So yeah, last week was a, a bottle episode or a, a a flashback episode. I think that's the way we should go with it. As uh, as we said previously, Andy was or still is away you're back uh safe and sound this week and we're recording the pod but but last week you were you were down south in yep. uh, in banbury down in opening Houston, a cinema banbury. yeah which uh i was down there opening a cinema which isn't open yet it's been put back a couple of weeks so we've still got a couple more weeks of chaos and bedlam before things can settle into a pattern so don't be surprised if there's another little bonus bottle episode next week because we can't guarantee that we're going to be able to get some FaceTime over here and chat away. It's it's crazy down there. It's I, I've been working about oh, 50, 58 hours over the past week. You turn up at 8 o'clock right. in the morning. You go home when you're done, which is usually about 8 o'clock at night. I did have one night that I didn't finish until 10. It's, it's stressful. It's challenging. You come in each day with a plan of what jobs you've got to do and what training you're doing. And 14 other things have landed on your desk as soon as you've walked in and you need to work out how to slot them into the day. My mind won't switch off. So even when I leave the cinema, I'm going over to my hotel room, breaking open my laptop and continuing doing cinema work because I want the site to open beautifully. I want it to be effective. And it's just chaotic times on the run to it. It, it. This is what I was expecting. And this is what I love. I feel really, really engaged in the job that I'm doing at this point in time. And I Fantastic. am loving it. It's also interesting, like, because I'm starting to get to know the head office team a lot closer because they've, they've drifted in and out of our site, come around to visit at Sheffield a few times. And like, I do get on with them. But now I'm working closely with them. So I'm building up the, that rapport, those relationships, and getting a chance to demonstrate to them everything that I've been saying I'm able to do. So... It's great. It's a great atmosphere. It's a great team. That was the one thing that I was worried about is that, you know, going down to Banbury would have get on with the team because you know how much I love the, the guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said in the last show that we did. Yeah, how tearful it was leaving. And I think they've got a really, really good team in there. There's some real good star players already, even in the new team who we've been training over the past two weeks. There's some star players starting to shine. And I can genuinely see within three months when I come to leave to go back to Sheffield, I'm going to be a tearful, emotional wreck <laughs> leaving Banbury. And it is like the whole of the light company. Because we, we don't name drop which company I work for that often. Because uh, we, we do, like, you know, I, I need to make it clear that whenever I give an opinion on film, 
it's not my opinion as someone who works for a cinema. It's my opinion as a film lover. And that's why I don't name drop the company. We strive to keep our independence. I mean, we've got no huge conglomerate behind us. We'd like one. If anyone, if, <laughs> don't get know, me wrong. If Paramount <laughs> wants to uh, sponsor us, then uh, I might give a better review of uh, Top Gun Maverick later. But um... <laughs> that's that's kind of a fore- foreshadowed that event then. But but yeah, I mean, being down in Banbury during all this, it's made me realise that I'm not just part of the Sheffield Light family, I'm part of the Light family, and it does feel like a family. Everyone in the head office genuinely cares about every level of the business. And they they love like making sure that the team are okay. I mean, this reflects back to when remember when lockdown one happened and we started doing this thing weekly. Remember all that time ago, yeah. And that I mentioned one of my neat things one week was Disney Plus because I got my subscription for Disney Plus and it was bought for by the CEO, the CEO at lockdown one. Whilst other unnamed chains um, of cinemas were laying off their staff left, right, and centre. Our CEO treated everyone to a year subscription of Disney Plus. Fantastic! That's I, I didn't see my name on on that that email. Sadly, um, you don't work for us. Uh, oh, you, well, sh- oh. you should have got a part time job and just done one shift a week. <laughs> yeah, okay. Get all the free films that you want, and then get yourself the treats. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now it's it, it's really chaotic but it's really great and I'm absolutely loving it. The only thing that I'm not loving is, you know, we do want to keep giving you these episodes every week. And I, yeah, it's not just like, because we want to give them out to you. This is a chore. Me and Lee love these catch-ups. We do. We love our little chats. I mean, like, you know, anyone who's seen any of the deleted scenes that I occasionally upload onto YouTube will see how much fun we have making this. Cause we are just two film geeks who just love chatting about film. And- we're just a, we're just film geeks saying oh what's the line from from for weddings and a funeral i'm just a boy i'm just a film geek uh oh i don't know it was it was a nice attempt to try to bring get into a movie quote and change it <laughs> all right i always try you know you know a good, how much i love a good movie quote uh, and you know what i've got to be honest andy the weirdest thing because i always listen even um you know um to the shows that i know we've not not produced and the weirdest thing was you going uh doing the intro <laughs> because that that felt so wrong. Because that's your so bit. Wrong. It that's is that's your my bit, bit of the show. You you do the intro and you do all the little <laughs> like midpoint. I mean, did you notice how I managed to just snag a midpoint thing for a previous? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it in <laughs> you know when you you you've come into work and you if someone else has come in and done your job, and you, you think, <laughs> oh, this is not right. I'm like getting the site. It was just it was just very very strange. Um, it's also <laughs> worth noting because this is the part of the show that only the podcast people get. And yes. we always make we always make it clear that the you podcast listeners you get the extended version of the show with more chat, more gossip, and more fun, and more of an insight into us. But something interesting happened this week because the radio got an exclusive version. Yes, so if you want to listen to that exclusive version, and it was very darn good, I may I may have to point out that you missed a treat. <laughs> All you have to do is listen to uh, No Barriers Radio on NoBarriersRadio.com. And go to the website and you can go to the listen again feature and listen to the exclusive radio version of last week's show. Now, the reason why the radio version had a different version is because one thing that I've wanted to do for a while is to do like I've talked very often and I always draw reference to soundtracks and music used in films, etc. Because music is my second passion after film. Uh, and Lee, pretty much, you know, I, th- yeah, I think yeah. you like music to a degree, don't you? I'm, I'm not I mentioned sure. it once or twice, my <laughs> love of music, maybe fleetingly. But obviously, 
in order to do that on a podcast, I would have to pay ridiculous costs for the licensing for tracks. The radio station has the licensing to play yes. tracks. So it gave an opportunity for me to do a needle drops episode where I've picked some tunes from some films and I could have done a 14 hour show with the amount of needle drops that stood out to me. But it's some of the tro- needle drops that we've spoken about in deep dives. Uh, we've got a needle drop from Manhunter. If you know the film, you know what exactly which one I, I, I'm talking about. Uh, a few from Edgar Wright films and so on and so forth. And it's a whole episode of me just explaining what moments in films that reminds me of and why it's so important and why it's key. When I, when I edited it together, this is, I've said before that when I edit the show, I listen to it in chunks as I'm editing it, so I don't really re-listen to it. But once I'd got this all cut together, I then slotted it on, sat and listened to the whole hour of the show, and I was like, you know what, I love this. I, I'm just I was, I was, I was honestly, I was quite envious, thinking if I've, I've got to do a needle drop one now. Uh, <laughs> that's how envious I was. Yeah, if you pick out your, you pick out a selection of needle drops for yeah. you, and you can, you can do one of your. You can do an exclusive one for some time down the line for the radio. Yeah. But it's great having that radio connection is that it allows us to do some of the more, the stuff that we can't touch because of licensing. The radio can obviously get away with playing it. Yeah, uh, It's great. Uh, I, I'm planning another one exclusively for the radio, which will be on orchestral scores. Or maybe not orchestral, maybe um, instrumental in general, because, you know, you've got scores from Tron Legacy, et cetera, et cetera, that I, you know, Fight Club score from by the Dust Brothers. Oh, you've, you've, oh, you've started now. I was trying to do that without sounding like uh, Foghorn Leghorn. I, I say, but I, <laughs> I, say, I, boy, I, say. I say, I say, I'll start, I'll start, you started. <laughs> by saying that, Andy, I think you've you've jumped into the mental list that I was just putting together as we were talking. <laughs> so it, um, I, I will be doing more for the weeks where we struggle to get together to record. You podcast listeners will get compilations of previous stuff. Maybe I might share some of the stuff that I've done just as videos only and translate it to audio as a different way, like the years in my life in film. But the radio enables us to play music, funnily enough. And wow, it was so much fun putting it together. And funny, the radio station have been asking for ages, will we do a, a music episode or would we include more music? Which we said no. <laughs> Most of the time we actually said no, we wouldn't. We want to keep it as the show. It's more because to add music in on a weekly basis would mean having to completely re-edit the show. And at the moment, all that I have to do is I edit down whatever we've spoken about for the podcast and then find what time I need to remove. So it's so much easier to just remove chunks rather than go, right, we now need to restructure a lead-in for this tune, restructure a lead-in for this tune. It would add a serious workload onto me. Uh, unless someone wants to sponsor us and pay me, um, it's not <laughs> One day, something that I've got time to do. I know that's something that w- that we both aim for is a, a sponsored show, because I, I not not even for you know we do this for nothing. We do it for the love, but it would be nice to have the opportunity to do more stuff. And when we've talked about what we'd like to do, uh, we yeah. talked about wanting to do a live show uh, in front of an audience, and we've talked about wanting to do just take the show other places. So. You know, we, we'd love to have, have a, a, a good couple of sponsors that we could run throughout the show, not just to make money out of it, but to, to give us some freedoms to do other things. Yep. But anyway, we are where we are. But where are we this week? Well, wow, that was a lot of wheeze and where's there. It was, don't you think so? <laughs> I, I tried to get as many into a sentence. It's like, where's Waldo? You can pick out how many where, wow, wow, wow's we are this week. I thought you were going to say wild, wild west then. 
<laughs> I don't know where I'm going today. So what's in this week's show? Of course, now we're back. We will have news. We will have deep dives where this week our deep dive will be the film Copland in honour of the passing of the late, great Ray Liotta. Andy's going to be reviewing Top Gun Maverick, which landed at cinemas, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which landed on Disney+, and one which Lee has no interest in at all, Jackass 4.5. But we are both going to be talking about the start of the new Disney+, Plus Star Wars show, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But before any of that, here is the news. And of course, when we do the news, there's only one place to start, and that is with the box office. And I'm clear in my own head that soaring above everything else this week is going to be Top Gun Maverick. So, yeah, it comes as no surprise that this weekend Top Gun Maverick has blown away all the box office basically worldwide. If we start with the US, it's had a really strong opening weekend. It's on Memorial Weekend at the moment, so they will still account for Monday to take the total figures. But at the moment, it's taken $124 million in the States alone. Doctor Strange holds into second place after being bumped down one slot. $16.4 million is his takings at the moment. Bob's Burgers movie comes in at 126 Downton Abbey, 5.9 million, and Bad Guys holding into fifth place, still in that top five, and well-deserved to stay there at 4.6 million. Here in the UK, again, Top Gun Maverick, it's taken a cracking £15.9 million in the UK so far, a very strong opening weekend. Whether it can retain it week on week remains to be seen because the target audience seems to be the demographic who remember the original Top Gun, can it get some good holdovers? We'll find out next week. Doctor Strange, again, bumped down to second place. It's now up to 37.7 million in the UK. Everything everywhere all at once. Holding in third place takes another 467,000 this weekend, taking its total in the UK to 2.88 million. Downton Abbey, 349,000 this week, 13.3 uh, million overall so far. And Bob's Burgers surprisingly comes in at fifth place. Didn't realise it had much of a following in the UK. Turns out £346,000 worth of people think that it does. Maverick, so far, after just its opening weekend, has raked back £260 million worldwide, which puts it well on track for going into huge profits by the end of its run. So, Doctor Strange has done well. It's done better than the original Doctor Strange. And it's on track to maybe get to close to the billion, but it's slowing down so much that it looks like it might not actually pass the billion. It remains to be seen whether it can pick up anything more. But concerns have been raised over the significant drop-offs that large-scale films have been seeing in this post-COVID times. I mean, on its second week, Doctor Strange dropped 67%, whereas most MCU films usually drop about 50%. So it's not boding well for the longevity of box office releases. Uh, new films that were released on that second week seriously underperformed. Uh, we spoke about Firestarter coming out when I reviewed it, and I reviewed it poorly. The, the negative reviews might have had an influence on the fact that it really bombed at the box office. People have been saying because it released on Peacock at the same time, that must have harmed it, but that didn't damage Halloween Kills last year. So you can't really say that the simultaneous release on horror films, because I think horror audiences flock to the cinema anyway. But but could that be with that Firestarter had such lousy word of mouth and, you know, there wasn't much in the way of, of big promotion on it? Because I even think the studio realised that this was a spark rather than a flame. Yeah. 
And Doctor Strange, on the other hand, got mixed word of mouth. Yeah. It... So, so perhaps that's that's more to do with it. I mean, we've we've talked about uh, big drop offs before, but we've looked at big drop offs when there have been films which have not. I mean, you look at Spider Man. Uh, no way home and you see how well that did for so long and same with the batman yeah but it's clear that audiences are becoming a lot more discerning these days because you know poor word of mouth and poor reviews didn't harm michael bay's transformers franchise which still had people coming week after week or the fast and furious franchise which has grown into a juggernaut that doesn't deserve to exist anymore but it's still (laughs) going yeah it's never harmed things in the past when there's post-pandemic times it seems that the public perception of reviews from critics and also the general audiences is starting to influence decisions a lot more. Total US box office so far this year is down 60% on pre-pandemic levels. There's been a lack of product, obviously. All the production delays and the films that have shunted around and reshuffles have left quite a few gaps where there's been three or four weeks with nothing major. But it is causing concern within the industry that if it doesn't pick up soon, they need to think about what film content that goes to box office actually should represent. And it might benefit, to some degree, the smaller budget films. Films like Everything Everywhere All at Once have done much better than what they anticipated. So audiences are now seem to be driven more by quality rather than just big names being in films. So the event films that we've gone through over the past two decades where, you know, big event, big event, big event, and that's the moneymaker. They might be the ones that drop off as people get more about if I'm going to spend an hour and a half, two hours, three hours in in an auditorium. I want something that I will enjoy and will deliver quality. I, I, I'm kind of with you on, on, on this. I think we go through these periods and I think we've, we've talked about them before with films dropping off in their second and third week considerably. We looked at uh, Black Widow, for instance. Yeah, I do think that audiences are changing. I think we're getting to a stage where we are inundated with content, more so than we've ever been, more so than before the pandemic. Uh, and knowing the fact that we now only have to wait a few short weeks before we're going to get it on Disney Plus or on a streamer, I think that's taken a, a lot of the wind out of the sails for a lot of movies. I think it's it's inevitable. I'm, I've done it myself, and, and I love going and seeing something on the big screen. But if, I know that if a movie I'm kind of semi-interested in seeing is going to make its way to Disney+, Plus, then I've got much less interest in, in, in heading out and doing it. So I, I think we're going through through an interesting change. I, I'm, and, and it sounds like I'm going off... off uh, off, off subject for a second, but I'm on a um, a marketing thing for for Disney Plus, so I get emails every every week asking about uh, my my opinions or re- to review stuff for for Disney Plus. And I've noticed in the last couple of these uh, with Disney Plus asking, do you think that uh, Marvel is oversaturating the market right now? Which is interesting because that that must be something that they are now starting to see maybe starting to consider that there is an oversaturation in in the market. And we always knew that we were going to get to this stage. And we always knew that films like Venom and films like Mobius were dirtying the water for the for the bigger event films. I think we're going to see a, a bit of a sea change. And maybe it was inevitable that the rise of the superhero movie 
has, has plateaued. I don't think yep. it's declining, but I think it's potentially plateaued. And I think when we get round to seeing the next Thor movie, great trailer, by the way, boys, yeah, and the next Black Panther movie, that that might be the time to assess it. Because if those two films do remarkably well, then it's down to the mixed reactions on Doctor Strange. And we spoke about it and we found fault with it in a way that, that it just seemed a little bit of thought had gone out of the post-production of that film. Yeah. Uh, but we are oversaturated. I can't see a world now that needs a Star Wars movie because what Disney Plus are doing is expanding uh, the world in a way that the, the last three Star Wars films didn't. Yeah. So I think we're in interesting days. We go through these uh, these post-apocalypse times when we're talking about, is this the end of a certain part of cinema? And then something comes along and, and changes it. But, you know, there's there's always going to be that, that, that point of oversaturation. I thought Marvel went down that route when they were releasing four films a year instead of three. And, and now you've got to have seen the TV series before you see the next movie. And even I'm starting to notice in myself a little bit of fatigue showing. We'll see what effect everything has on the industry as more and more of the big event films come out. And, you know, obviously at the end of this year, we've got one of the biggest event films of all, like uh, the past, well, basically the past since the first film came out because Avatar 2 tra has trailered well. Yeah, millions and millions of people watched it. It broke all sorts of records. The response has been very good as well. The, the comments are generally like, I wasn't expecting much, but this looks amazing. And I've got to see the trailer on a crisp, clean laser projection, and it looks beautiful. Now, will it start a resurgence in 3D? Not convinced, but it looks beautiful. I, can't, I don't know what the story's going to be, but I love, the, I love the water effects. And if anyone yeah. can do water effects well... It's James Cameron who basically tries to drown his cast every time that he talks about water. <laughs> um, we both said for years, like, never underestimate James Cameron. Whenever people say, why is he doing Avatar 2? Oh, can't he move on to other things? Never underestimate James Cameron. Everyone who's done that has always had egg on their face when Titanic actually turned out to be a huge success. Avatar turned out to be a huge success. Everything he's ever done has always managed to, managed to grab the attention. But it's a great trailer. If you've not seen the trailer yet, you've clearly not been the cinema in the past few weeks, but uh, it's on YouTube. Give it a check. It is looking like it's going to be quite a nice, action-packed and very beautiful-looking film. And then, wow, fancy getting a teaser trailer for a film that isn't out for quite some time that actually feels better than a full trailer. And I'm talking about the Mission Impossible trailer. Yes, I'm glad we came to that because uh, it came out during last week when uh, we weren't on, uh, on air and I thought we do really need to talk about it because, well, what a trailer. That's how you make a great trailer. I don't think they need to make, because uh, that's supposed to be just the teaser. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they need another trailer. I think he did all, all the work. Because that, I mean, again, I'm talking about music, but the score for the trailer, the the like different rendition of the Mission Impossible theme really like gives it a... a full emphasis you get so many clips of various elements of the stunts but you don't get the story aspect you don't quite know what's going on except for he's got to decide who he's working for there's uh, it looks great it looks amazing tom cruise throwing himself off the edge of uh, rocky outcrops on a motorbike 
everything you expect from a, a Mission Impossible film, but it looks... It's like the Mission Impossible f- f- franchise has now overtaken Bond and become more the defining spy film series. There, There is one issue, though, with that, which, well, I'm not saying it's an impossibility, but I, I think Mission Impossible is based around, is built around Tom Cruise. Now, you can do a Mission Impossible film and keep the name uh, and, and bring somebody new in when Tom Cruise, as he's suggested, the next one is his last one that he, he doesn't have to, uh, he's not going to do another one. But you you know, you know, could be clever and keep Mission Impossible going uh, and bring in another lead because it, it should be about the team. Yeah. Uh, it didn't work with Bourne when they did Bourne Legacy. It's it interesting because Renner is great. It just, the film itself wasn't. You see, I don't think Renner's a leading man. I really don't. I think he's a great uh, uh, supporting actor. I think he's... Uh, he works great in an ensemble. I'm looking at Wind River, which is a particular yeah. favourite of mine, and, and Arrival. But I don't think he's a he's a leading box office man. Anyway, beside the point, I, I think it's interesting to see where, where they can go with this. But as you you mentioned, it's a great looking great looking trailer, which got me so so psyched for for the film and you know part one and part two. Yeah, it, if you're again, if you've not checked it, go over to YouTube and see uh, Tom Cruise doing crazy stunts. And speaking of crazy stunts and segueing like a madman today, oh, so you do it so well. Eighties TV series, The Fall Guy, which um, had Lee Majors as an unknown stuntman who is also a bounty hunter, helping out helping out people from town to town, has got a casting for the movie version, and it's Ryan Gosling in that lead role. I know, I couldn't believe it. This was one of our uh, Twitter challenges a couple of weeks ago. What <laughs> TV series would you put on the big screen? And I, I think somebody did say Fall Guy. I'm pretty <laughs> sure somebody did. And now it's happened. I'd like to feel deep down a responsibility for that. Yeah, uh, I, we, I can't, we in all it. honesty, but <laughs> you know. Um, so fantastic. I'm I'm so pleased that... Um, I, I used to love watching that series. It's, it's during that era when I'd moved away from that sort of... Uh, <laughs> kind of episodic TV, but uh, you know, I'm I'm still hoping out for that great six million dollar man movie. Well, it might get come even closer now that the Fall Guy is getting made. Uh, the series of the Fall Guy, for the, those who don't know, um, came from creator Glenn A. Larson, who was responsible for all those ATEs output that everyone remembers, like Knight Rider, Magnum PI, and Battlestar Galactica. If it's done well, I hope. I mean, the the series itself had a jokey fun to it. So they can go the slight comedy approach. I think Ryan Gosling's a great bit of casting. Yeah, he's not the not the obvious choice. I think he can, if he take if he takes the same approach to it as he did his character in The Nice Guys, I think that would work yeah. beautifully. Universal Filmed Entertainment are going to shoot in Australia next year. There's no director or writer attached yet, but yep, I'm going to keep keep keeping an eye on this this project about like a stuntman daredevil. And speaking of Daredevil... Another great segue, and that's where I was hoping you were going to go, because I just brought up my notes on Daredevil. And this news, again, landed while we were we were away, for, for want of a better term, uh, and this made me so happy. Um, well, we knew that uh, Daredevil was entering into the MCU. We'd seen Matt Murdock appear in the Spider-Man movie, there was the Kingpin arriving at the end of Hawkeye. And then, of course, Echo, which is the upcoming Marvel Disney Plus series, had been rumoured 
that the Kingpin was going to appear in that and had been rumoured that Daredevil was going to appear. But yes, Charlie Cox from the Netflix series is coming back as Daredevil in a new Disney Plus series. And Daredevil is my all-time favourite superhero character. I don't know why Daredevil, I got asked that just the other day, but he's the character that I will always, always follow. The one book that I've, I've never put down. So I'm so excited. And it's with the Disney Plus version that I think we'll get to see the Daredevil that I always wanted to see that got hinted at it with with the Ben Affleck one. They yeah. couldn't do it on the Netflix series due to, to, to budget restrictions, but we're going to get him to see you know, the, the, the might of the Disney special effects that we'll see him on rooftops and swinging from building to building and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I, I'm, I am so, so super psyched for it. Yeah. Uh, uh, comic book wise, I've always liked the character of Daredevil, but I've never been a huge follower of him. I've, whenever I've read stuff of Daredevil, I've, I've enjoyed it, but it's not a comic that I stuck with. I've always wanted to see a good representation on screen. And we did get it with Ben Affleck's version. People are unnecessarily nasty about Affleck's. I, I didn't dif- dislike it. I, you know, the, the film had some problems. I've seen MCU movies that had more problems than Daredevil did. Uh, I think Jennifer Garner was miscast. Uh, I think there were, um, there were issues with it. But you know what? When I saw it, I liked it. When the director's cut came out on disc, that felt like a, a a true homage. There were there were panels that appeared in in that movie, panels from from the comic, and I, I have love for it. I I don't dislike the costume. I think it was an interesting way of going with the costume. Yeah, that that felt realistic and not a guy in uh, in lycra. To some extent, I think I preferred the costume to the to the TV series version. So I uh, I, I don't dislike the Affleck version at all. And uh, uh, and I've got a soft spot for it, so I'm I'm just interested to see where it goes. And I'd like to see the return of some of the other Netflix uh, characters. I thought the Luke yeah. Cage series was pretty good, and I loved Jessica Jones. And I'd like to see that character come back, and hopefully they will. Uh, enough said about Iron Fist. Um, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what they could do with Punisher because that's such yeah. a controversial figure right now. But yeah, I, I open the door for these these characters to come back. I, I think it's I think it's great. Yep. More comic book news, or should I say, Alan Moore comic book news? Oh, see what you did there. I'm really segue. You like are you crazy on fire? Um, Hulu and 20th Century Studios are bringing Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen to new life. Uh, the comic book, for those who've read it, they know that it follows famous literary characters: Alan Quatermain, Captain Nemo, Mina Harker, the Invisible Man, Jekyll and Hyde investigating crimes, leading secret missions, and also getting up to some corruption themselves. Uh, there was a previous adaptation. So those of you are thinking, they've already made a film of this. Yes, there was. It was in 2003. It's not worth watching. It threw away all but the characters, just kept the names of the characters and changed the style and tone to become just a generic action film as a Sean Connery leading actor vehicle. He was playing Quartermain. So much so that it was it was such a, a bad experience that that finally convinced Connery to retire. To retire, yeah. And Stephen Norrington never directed another film after that. Yep, it destroyed his career completely because Norrington and Connery in particular on set were completely at loggerheads. And the, the end result, you can see the mess that there was behind the scenes by the end result. Uh, but the new version, Justin Haith, who penned Revolutionary Road, is penning the script. 
There's no director or cast ideas yet, but as a, as a joke bit of casting, please, please, please make Cena the Invisible Man. And that's a wrestling <laughs> reference for those who don't know. <laughs> uh, speaking of bad films, Uwe Boll is back. The Grand Poobah of terrible movies. <laughs> yes. Uh, is, he, is he coming back? Because he, he threw himself into uh, a retirement. Did he yeah, make a film with Stephen Norrington and get upset? He threw, he threw a strop because he was fed up of critics constantly ripping into his films, uh, which sometimes he said unnecessarily because there was clear examples of critics who reviewed his films that the review didn't kind of reflect the film itself. And he was convinced that most people were automatically assuming that all of his films were bad and just saying, don't watch it, it's garbage like he normally does. He's notoriously bad, but he is passionate. He was passionate as a director. I saw so many interviews with him or like documentaries that made you see that like he's enthusiastic about what he was doing. I had a lot more respect for Uwe Boll than Michael Bay because <laughs> Boll was doing it because he genuinely believed he was doing a good job, whereas Michael Bay is only doing it for the money. And it, there are a couple of worthwhile films within his usual deluge of dross that, whilst not great films for him, they were masterpieces. Uh, but he's coming back with Ness, a $25 million film about Elliot Ness, the guy who took down Al Capone. I thought you were going to say Loch Ness. I really I mean, did. I thought this was uh, this seemed more up Uwe Boll's, uh, um, <laughs> more in his his wheelhouse than Elliot Ness. Coming from Boll, he'll probably link the two in some way. Um, but his, his film is set a few years after the events that we've seen played out so many times at the takedown of Capone. And it sees Ness on the hunt for a serial killer known as the Butcher of Kingsbury Run, who was responsible for grisly murders in a Cleveland shantytown. And it's based on the real-life case. The screenplay is from Whitney Scott Bain, and casting is currently underway with plans to shoot next year. And also, at the same time, Boll is working on a documentary about the Banditos, a motorcycle gang who are at the centre of a major criminal case in Germany. So it looks like he's, he's finished his five years of sulking and has decided, no, I'm giving it another chance. Has he learned how to make a film in that time? I don't know. I, I need to ask you something on, on this. Because yes. I, I have only seen bits and pieces of Uwe Boll movies and, and just thought they were they were amateurish and it's like the guy didn't know where to put the camera uh, or how to get decent performances from actors. Now, I've seen many films where directors don't know where to put the camera and, and can't get decent performances from actors. Am I being just unkind? Is he just an amateurish filmmaker? Is he... So he was Dr. Uwe Boll, as, as legend has it. Yeah. Is he a terrible filmmaker? Is he because he's an independent filmmaker? There's no one telling him that he's he's making crap, you know. And and that happens with big directors who've got a little bit of power. They don't know that they're making making crap. What is it? What is it about him in particular that that makes him so derided? I don't know because you see how people lap up films from the asylum, which are deliberately yeah, bad films. Yeah, they're, they're dreadful. Uh, you I see mean. how popular the Sharknado films are. I mean, I love the Sharknado films. But is and, that because you know they're intentionally crap? Yeah, I think there's some of his, like Uwe Boll's films, they know what they are. I think he knows in some cases what they are, but I think it's the fact that sometimes he thinks he's making art. And if he, if he, if he had just like said for everyone in his films, like, I'm having fun. I'm just creating these, usually video game adaptations. And I'm just having fun with it. And didn't try to be so po-faced and serious about how them being like well-respected pieces of art. I think they might have been embraced more. 
Maybe not in the name of the King, a Dungeon Siege movie, which was absolute trash. Um, yeah, that got, that got the Golden Raspberry Award for the worst director, and it deserved it. Uh, but things like, you know, the Blood Rain films are fun. Postal, I had a riot with. And, you know, the game that was adapted from was never a great game anyway. So I watched the film expecting something a bit nonsense. I quite enjoyed his uh, Rampage film. Uh, this isn't the Rampage film with the giant monsters that was uh, a yeah, few yeah. years ago. This is a different one. Um, and I think that Rampage was his strongest film. It didn't need three sequels. Uh, he didn't know <laughs> when to stop on it. But every now and then he's done one that kind of works. And he's done ones like Blubberella, which he knew exactly what he was making with that. It was just absolutely, it was an exploitation comedy film. And it kind of works because it, on the same level that like your Sharknado's work, it is deliberately bad. I do think it is just generally that every now and then he thinks he's making art. There was the time when he threatened, like when he challenged his top critics to come and beat him up, like have a fight with him in the boxing ring. Yes. To prove who's the better person. And the ones who took him up on it, well, actually, actually has a lot of respect for him at the end of it, mainly because he levied them to the ground because the guy's a trained boxer. <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested. Like I say, I've got a lot of respect for Bol for the simple passion that you can see that he's got. And even if he's not a good director, at least he's trying. And you've got to respect that in some way. You've got to respect it. Watch his films expecting nothing more than just throw away disposable trash and you'll find enjoyment in some of them. Just okay. the ones that are too serious, they're the ones that let them down. That's why in the, name of the, in the Name of the King, it took me four watchers to watch that because it took itself far too seriously. And he's not the kind of director who can convey more serious films. Um, but speaking of crap, All right. in no shit, in no shit Sherlock news this week. You're today, boy, with, this, uh, <laughs> with your segues. Have you, is this what you've been doing all week while you've been bored? Thinking of segues to, to, to run everything. through the show. Because I've got, I've got a bit of news, but I haven't seen the segue for it yet. <laughs> um, it was becoming a common theme with the no shit Sherlock news. This week, Saoirse Ronan has been added to the list of the cast for Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Because of course she has. Yes, course. It's not a Greta Gerwig film unless Ronan is involved. Uh, Dua Lipa has also been added to the ever-expanding cast that includes, and I need to take a big breath here, Margot Robbie as Barbie, alongside Ryan Gosling as Ken, along with a massive ensemble including America Ferreira, Simu Liu, Issa Rae, Michael Cera, Kate McKinnon, Alexandra Shipp, Emma McKee, Will Fennell, Kingsley Benadir, Emerald Fennell, Harry Neff, Shooty Gatwa, Rhea Perlman, Scott Evans, and Connor Swindles. Blimey. Ooh. Now, according Blimey. to sources, some of these names are playing the same roles. Confused? Yeah, I am. I'm thoroughly confused now. According to Insiders, the film is going to feature multiple versions of the Ken character and the Barbie character. It's sounding super meta at this point. Yeah, we know that the Barbie dolls themselves are manufactured in different styles for different ethnicities. Yeah. So it looks like they're having multiple versions of the characters to represent those multiple versions of the dolls that are out there. Everyone is now turning their eyes to this project after what was initially just dismissed as like, oh, who wants to make a film about toys? And then Greta Gerwig's added. It's like, okay, this is an interesting choice. And as all the casting's taken place and all the news is coming out, this is becoming one of the hottest focused films that's in production. I guess we'll find out what's going on when a trailer lands eventually. Or maybe it'll only be when the film releases in July 2023 that we actually get any idea of what on earth this is all about. But this is... 
this is my film of next year. This is my most anticipated film of 2023. <laughs> Forget everything else. I need to see a Barbie film. And that's words that I never thought I would ever say. Well, and while we're with Margot Robbie. Okay, another segue. I will get this bit of news in, I promise. <laughs> She's set to reteam with bombshell director Jay Roach for a 60s set prequel. Prequel? Why, why did I say it like prequel? <laughs> prequel. That's a, that's a, it's a nighttime... Uh, uh... <laughs> It's a nighttime tablet that'll help you sleep better. The prequel. <laughs> the prequel. Take two. Um, a 60s set prequel to Ocean's Eleven. Now, the 2001 film was a remake of the 1960s Rat Pack classic. It was indeed. Uh, but the modern one was set during contemporary times, which means that this prequel, we may see younger versions of some of the older cast for the 2001 film. Chris Solomon is scripting. Did you ever like the uh, Ocean's Eight film? I. I avoided it, and I'm disappointed that I avoided it, because when I finally got round to watching it at home release, I felt that I'd missed out on a cinema treat. Yeah, it was a lot a better than I gave it credit for. I don't think the trailers sold it. The trailers made it just look like, oh, what's the point in this? They're just trying to reboot the franchise for no reason. Oh, they're just gender swapping. And I fell into that negativity and toxicity, sadly. And I hate myself for having done it, because the film itself, I think it was, I think it was one of the better if not the better sequel to the Oceans franchise. Yeah, no, I'll go with you on that. I think it's, I think it's vastly underrated. Uh, so Chris Solomon's scripting this new Oceans film, which we don't know what it's going to be called now. Oceans 1, Oceans 7, Oceans 49. It could be anything now. They might just call it Ocean 60s. And the film will be set in Europe with filming planned for spring next year. Okay, well, I've got a bit of news. Well, I've got, a, I've got the moment to get it in. So we know that... Um, there are still some more Marvel shows to come. We had the trailer for She-Hulk. I'm, I'm just going to go off on a tangent before I give you my news. There was a lot of uh, negativity to the She-Hulk trailer, basically because people were saying the effects work looked shoddy. If the effects work, work was finished, then the show would be going out next week <laughs> because that's <laughs> what happens. Effects work is done right to the 11th hour. Yeah. Uh, we've had this many, many times where people have looked at a trailer and go, oh, I'm not sure about the effects work. That's because the effects work is always worked on right through to the release window. Anyway, before I feel the need to lecture even more, Miss Marvel, we know that's the next one in the, uh, in the Marvel pantheon, which is due. However, in Pakistan, Miss Marvel is getting a cinema release. Oh, so They're like flying over there. Yeah, because, you know, it's the first uh, Muslim superhero to to get a big screen outing. So uh, in, in kind of honor of that, uh, it's not going to Disney Plus. It is going straight to cinema. So I'm guessing they're going to be cutting the episodes either down or extended uh, almost a, a six hour movie. I'm quite looking forward to it. The early reviews have started landing for the first two episodes of Ms. Marvel. Oh, have they? Are positive? Very positive. There's a lot that one reviewer has compared the energy of it to Mitchell's versus the machines. All right. They'll, they'll, you had me on Mitchell's versus the machines every time. Um, the lead actress has been described by most reviewers as being the best thing in it and absolutely shining and completely relatable and engaging throughout. It sounds like absolute fun. Um, I've seen one review that they said that this is the best first two episodes of any of the MCU shows so far. 
wow and i heard people say that about moon knight so you know yeah. wait and see well, um, like just again there's a bit of a segue for that as i mentioned earlier i'm on a a, a marketing thing for disney plus so I get sent questions every every week about what do I think about this program or this, and usually the Marvel ones. Uh, so I got sent a questionnaire this last week, which said, which Marvel films am I looking forward to and, and which Marvel series? So they gave She-Hulk and they gave yeah. uh, Miss Marvel and they talked about Secret Invasion and they said Fantastic Four. And they put a, a photograph up of Fantastic Four with cast members on, which was interesting. So this has not been leaked anywhere else. So John Kaczynski was there as uh, Reed Richards. Mm -hmm. Sans the beard in in the picture. Next to him was Sue Storm. Now I recognised the actor, but I couldn't tell you who it was. It was only a very small image. But uh, clearly, I think from that, we are probably a lot further along with casting. And and I'm assuming a casting announcement will be made. There was the Human Torch and there was uh, Sue Storm. But I couldn't figure out, I couldn't see who the actor was i would have said from that picture with shalise theron but we know now that it that it's not so uh whether it was a, just a, a production drawing or whether it is a, a photo of the cast incidentally the, the uh, uniforms were different than uh the ones that appeared in doctor strange so interesting so it, it, it could be that we will have an announcement very soon on yep. that movie and I'm just just about to say that you'll have to scrutinise that photo as close as possible just to see if it's Emily Blunt. You see, once I clicked out of the uh, out of the marketing material, there was no trace of it. I couldn't go back yeah. to it. So uh, I was I, I was interested to 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 work out who it is. Anyway, talking of John Watts, as we know that he uh, turned down Fantastic Four after being in pre-production. As to why, we're not sure. But what we do know is one of his next projects. He's moving into the Star Wars universe uh, with a series called Star Wars Skeleton Crew. At this stage, very little is known. And again, it seems to be the Star Wars moving away from, from Skywalker. And it's got a kind of a retro, almost Goonies type feel uh, with a much younger cast who are, are going to be involved in it. So again, it's good to see John Watts because I think if you ever see Cop Car, which was one of his first films, he had a great way with younger actors. And uh, he looks like he's bringing that to this particular Star Wars project. I, I like the energy that John Watts brings to films. So the series is set during the High Republic era. The original series follows younglings as they study the ways of the Force and become uh, Jedi. Compassion, self-discipline, teamwork, patience and friendship. The, the series stars uh, Jude Law, who has always been a bit of a sci-fi nut. He was desperate to have been cast in Watchmen. He really wanted to play Roshark. We saw him turn up in uh, uh, Captain Marvel. So interesting. That's due for Disney Plus in spring 2023. Uh, meanwhile, over at DC and Warners, through the court case that's going on at the moment being between Amber and Johnny, which is very much on, it's pointless as even covering it because everyone's watching it on TikTok and everything else. Everyone knows what's happening. Uh, we did get that Walter Hamada were, had to testify at one point. Um, Hamada, who's the head of Warner Brothers DC Films. And interestingly, he said that um, they had considered already cutting Amber Heard from the Aquaman film, even before all this take out, but she was ultimately cast in the first Aquaman film. He's, te- he's testified that the allegations against her have played no role in casting decisions on the blockbuster film. And he's also reportedly indicated that they did delay picking up Heard's option 
as it considered whether to recast her in the role of Mira. And the reason was because of her lack of chemistry with Jason Momoa. It, uh, as Amada said, in test, uh, I testified to this, they didn't have a lot of chemistry together. Editorially, they were able to make that relationship work in the first movie, but there was concern that it took a lot of effort to get there. You know it when you see it, and the chemistry wasn't there. Apparently, all the chemistry that you see between them in the first film was trickery in editing and post-production, because on set, they were cold. I've seen this story, and yeah, it's interesting, and uh, apparently what they're suggesting is there's about she's in the next movie for about 10 minutes yeah. uh, running time. And the version I've heard of this is that they will be introducing a new love interest character for Aquaman and using the character of dolphin from the comic books. Yeah. What impact all this trial that's going on is going to have on the end result. Same with uh, what impact all the mess that um, Ezra Miller has been getting into is going to have on the flash movie. We'll find out in the coming months. Uh, but the trial between Herb and Depp is still ongoing. We- we'll update once we know any details. They've just released some publicity stills of the Flash costume this week. Uh, I know it's much more comic accurate. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if there is, um, depending how all this plays out, that we get a last minute announcement that Ezra Miller has been recast. I, 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 that's just a theory on my part pure speculation but if this story keeps going on and i i do believe that that uh, they will they will fund another actor coming in and just reshooting his scenes and it's not that hard to do these days as it used to be uh, many years ago as we saw with the ridley scott movie and we've got more delays on films yes just when we thought that everything had kind of settled again demeter the dracula spin-off has been pushed back once more It was originally set for January 2023, and the film now lands in August 2023 instead. First look footage has already been screened to exhibitors, and the film is in post-production. Why it's moved is unknown. Whether it's for reshoots, or maybe, let's be honest, the January month is a dead zone to drop something, particularly a a horror-themed thing. So maybe this first footage has had such a good reception that they've moved it to a post like a late summer slot instead to generate more traffic uh, the story for those who haven't paid attention whenever we've spoken about this it's set on the chapter of the dracula novel where he's being carted across from his uh, castle over to the uk and it travels on the ship the demeter which eventually arrived crashing against rocks with all of its occupants dead bbc who, who we know do some fantastic radio plays once had a, a radio play, uh, which was the log of the Demeter, and it was fantastic. It was one Halloween, probably about oof, seven or eight years ago, and I was in growth, so much so that I, I, I took the long way home so I could listen to the end uh, of, of the of the uh, play. It was fantastic. So if it's, even if it's half as good as the uh, as the radio play, which will be its own story, I'm, I'm, I've always been intrigued by this project. So Kathleen Kennedy in other Star Wars news has confirmed that Taiki Waititi's movie will be released before the Rogue Squadron movie. We have no idea when the Rogue Squadron movie is coming out. It, it's, it has been delayed and was discussed and it's due so far for a late 2023 release. Whether that happens, uh, I don't know. I'm still uh, interested in the Patty Jenkins Rogue Squadron movie. 
though that project to appears to have stalled, uh, failing to take flight and use as many puns as I can. The, the only sad thing that came from any of the announcements by Kathleen Kennedy with regard to Star Wars is the sad little basement-dwelling fanboys who, as soon as her name is mentioned, start saying how she should be sacked. And they clearly have a problem with a powerful woman. And what annoys me is they say that she's responsible for Star Wars diminishing in quality and being rubbish. Yet the whenever there's whenever they love something, so Mandalorian comes out and everyone loves it. Oh, the fact that she's an executive producer is dismissed. Oh no, 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 yes. her name had nothing to do with it. But as soon as her name's on something that's bad, it's like this is all because of Kathleen Kennedy. Grow up, you sad little basement dwellers. That's I just want to put that in there because I am fed up of seeing people who will ignore her name on something when it's good, but will pick at it when it's bad, despite the fact that she's the executive producer. She's not necessarily the creator. She's not the director. She hasn't channeled the vision. She's putting the pieces in place behind the scenes to get these projects done. Some will be good. Some will be bad. Scorsese's been executive producer on some garbage through his years. It doesn't make him any less of a quality director or producer overall. Grow well up, said. people. Well said. I, I can't help but thinking there's a, a certain level of misogyny within I, some I of think, the fan yeah, community. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely spot on. It is misogyny. It's 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 yeah. like the uh, people not uh, not interested in watching the next Doctor Who, not because of, of any uh, drop in quality with the show. It's because there's a, a black actor to it. So uh, misogyny and racism, unfortunately, for a lot of the fan community, bring it down. Absolutely it's, bring it down. It's sad that that toxic element sits within the geek community. The geek community who 30, 40 years ago, when we were geeks, we were persecuted for being us. We should be the community that embraces everyone. And yet, sadly, too many of the geek community seem to think that you should only be a solitary white male sat in a basement with mum bringing your lasagna down for you. That's it. And I might have stereotyped there, but let's be honest, most of them are. <laughs> anyway, Scott Eastwood will reprise his role from the eighth Fast and Furious film, for Fast 10, which me and Lee are hugely anticipating. Yeah. Yeah. He played the role of the very rule-following government agent who worked for Kurt Russell's Mr. Nobody. It's unknown at this point whether Kurt Russell will reprise. Uh, spoiler alert, his character was last seen going down in a plane crash in the last film. I know that that's going to upset you that you've not got that far in the film franchise yet, and I've just spoiled that for you. Uh, yeah, yeah I, you, don't worry about it, Andy. It's not like I'm going to be hanging on <laughs> and just uh, having that revelation one day to go... You know what I really need to catch up with? I don't think it's ever going to happen in this lifetime. But that throws him alongside a chunk of cast that are in this film. Jason Momoa, Alan Richardson, uh, Brie Larson, Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, Tyrese Gibson, Charlize Theron. Uh, Lou Elia Terrier is directing. And in addition, Rita Marino, West Side Story and um, West Side Story, has been cast as Don Toretto's grandmother in the ever-expanding family. I mean, how many more hidden family members are out there? I've, I've got to say one thing about this franchise. They've got a heck of a cast. Yeah, I, mean, I think they're trying to outdo the Knives Out films. Yes, yeah. We've still got another Knives Out movie to announce. So, you know, everybody at some point will be in a Knives Out movie. That'll, that'll be the new Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, won't it? Six Degrees of Knives, knives Out. <laughs> Link any actor to Knives Out. <laughs> um, and speaking about fast cars, Gran Turismo. The Sony franchise racing game is going to get a movie. I'm not surprised. I know we've talked about a Hot Wheels movie in the last few weeks. So uh, Gran Turismo, 
I, I, I'm just not surprised. So Sony are lining up a few of their game franchises to either film or TV. Uh, for Netflix, there's Horizon Zero Dawn, which if done well, could be a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, Amazon have got the rights for God of War from Sony. And then there's this car racing film. And in addition, the news came that Neil Blomkamp is being lined up to direct the project, which apparently is in early development with the story under wraps. But how can you make a film based on a game that's just about driving cars? That's what I'm seeing from a lot of the fan community who don't seem to be able to see anything in more than just black and white. Well, let's ask how you can make a film about just people beating each other up in a boxing ring or how you can make a film set around tennis or how you can make a film set around football. You add a story to it. The racing becomes <laughs> oh, the Oh, that's how thrill. you do it. We've had films about the Grand Prix. We've had films about Monte Carlo. We've had films about all kinds of racing. Gran Turismo isn't just a game. It itself has tournaments, events. It has a driving academy. And all you need to do is add a generic, lowly driver aspires to be the best formula, throw in some of the game's most iconic tracks that it uses, and bingo, you have a Gran Turismo movie. I actually am quite excited for this. If I think you've just written direct it. it. Yeah, I've just written the, I've just written the whole thing. So Neil, if you're out there listening, if you do sign up to be director, I'll come on board to help with their story. Yeah, sounds good to me. You'll do or just sponsor the show and we'll yeah, give it yeah, a good that's review. Even better. <laughs> Can we have an advanced uh, preview of uh, uh, The Last of Us, please? Yeah, that sounds like a plan. So yeah, I'm I'm excited for it because you know the Gran Turismo experience isn't just a game; it's a whole. It's become a whole thing with actual real racing drivers now who started off as part of their Gran Turismo Academy and went to go to actual tracks and built up through it. So that's the end of the news for this week. But before we go, and sadly, very sadly, we've done this far too many times over the last few weeks, which is to announce the passing of people that we really, really admire on the show. And of course, uh, we couldn't do this week without mentioning the sad passing of Goodfellas actor uh, Ray Liotta, who died in his sleep in the Dominican Republic uh, just a few days ago at the age of 67. Uh, the US star had been on location filming the movie Dangerous Waters. Ray Liotta is probably best known for playing the mobster Henry Hill in Martin Scorsese's truly classic 1990 gangster film, uh, Goodfellas. But he was known for so much more than that. I mean, I think everybody's got a, a favourite Ray Liotta performance. Um, Field of Dreams for me. Uh, Narc, where I thought he was just outstanding. Copland, which we're going to be talking about in our deep dive. But a, a very sad loss, isn't it, Andy? It is, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was Field of Dreams and Goodfellas that really put him on the map. Uh, he first turned heads in Something Wild in 1986, but those were the two films that really set, up, set him up. And then like after that, his presence in things like Unlawful Entry, Karina Karina, Unforgettable, Copland, like you say, made him a household name almost. Everyone started to recognise him. And through the 2000s, he's continued with solid character roles in films such as Hannibal, Narc, Blow, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, Smoking Aces. And we recently saw him return to his gangster roots with Many Saints of Newark. Yeah, which is fabulous. He plays two parts in that and he, he was he was stunning. He, and and um, yeah. he turned down a role in the original Soprano series, but it was... Uh... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely uh, uh, devastating. He's always someone whose presence in a film made me more interested in watching that film. Even at, at, one, at the same time as the most the worst film ever made, Paul Blart Mall Cop came out, there was Observe and Report, which was the Seth Rogen uh, Mall Cop film. And we had Ray Liotta 
basically is the cop who he's logging heads against throughout. And Liotta just brought a serious professionalism to everything he did. Absolutely marvellous actor. 67's no time to go. Really sad times. And, you know, our hearts go out to all his family, friends, and every fan out there who always, like me, looked forward to seeing him pop up in more films. And, of course, that's the... uh... Not the only loss over the last couple no, of weeks. Because while we've been off air, we also got the sad news. And this ties in again to my love of music and scores and compositions. Composer Vangelis, uh, full name, Evangelos Odyssey Papathanasio, who gave us synth scores such as the award-winning Chariots of Fire and the hugely influential Blade Runner soundtrack, sadly passed away. Uh, Vangelis... Unlike most other composers who have an orchestra, he performed all of his own instruments, including piano, drums, synth, everything. He won the Oscar for his Chariots of Fire score in 1982, and he's also scored films such as Missing, Antarctica, The Bounty, Ridley Scott's 1492 Conquest of Paradise, and Oliver Stone's Alexander. And each of his scores are soundtracks that you can pick up that album and just lose yourself in. He just knew how to compose and present melodies and draw you in with everything that he did. And he knew how to set the actual tone. His Blade Runner soundtrack is clearly the one that had a huge influence on me uh, at the time that the film came out. I used to listen to that soundtrack over and over again. And it kind of set what you expect neo-noir, dark future music to be like. Yeah, it's not dated, has it? You, You can... You can watch Blade Runner and, and certain scores because of, of being synthesizer instantly take you back to a time and a place. But but I don't think that does Blade Runner. I think it offers, mm-hmm. it, it, it gives it futurism. And he did so much in, interesting work. You mentioned Chariots of Fire, which was, uh, uh, you can't even think about, uh, about athletes anymore without playing the theme from Chariots of Fire in your head. It's, it's that iconic. So, uh, again, another sad loss. And unfortunately, as we grow older, we're going to be having much, much more of these. But for this week, that's the end of the news. You're listening to your favourite podcast on film, and that's The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And by now, we would have expected you to become a subscriber. But if you haven't, please do so. Subscribe to the show by heading over to your favourite podcast platform, finding The Film File, hitting that subscribe button, and leaving a review as well. If you haven't done so, so far, then please do so. And if you know people who are not listening to the film file and who should be, then give them your hardest Paddington stare and get them to become part of the film file family. If you want to know more about film file, then you can do that as well by simply doing this. Head on over to Twitter, follow us at Filmfile UK. Head over to other social media platforms, follow us, just search for Filmfile UK. You'll find us somewhere. Or you can get in touch with us via email with any thoughts, comments, suggestions, top 10 lists, top 5 lists, best films, worst films, anything film related or entertainment related. Maybe you've got an exclusive scoop on news that you think that you can throw our way and you want to leak out to the world. Well, if it's clickbait, don't bother. But if it's genuinely got some info- information, Fire it over, podcast at filmfile.uk. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. And in honour of the passing of the great Ray Liotta, this week's Deep Dive is the 1997 neo-noir crime drama written and directed by James Mangold. The film starred 
Harvey Keitel, Robert De Niro, Peter Berg, Robert Patrick, Michael Rappaport, Annabella Schiaro, and Sylvester Stallone in what I think is one of his best roles ever. I look at this town and I don't like what I see anymore. One man is taking on a police force full of corruption to prove no one is above the law. For once, everybody in this town's gonna tell the truth. Sylvester Stallone, Harvey Keitel, Ray Liotta, and Robert De Niro. Here I am saying, Sheriff, I got something for you to do. Copland. When Andy mentioned that we were doing our deep dive this week, that we should do something to honor Ray Liotta, of course, it was an enormous list. I would have gone with Field of Dreams. But Andy said, let's talk about Copland. Well, we we covered Field of, Field of Dreams because that was one of my, I'd not seen those films oh, yeah. early on in the history of the show. So that's why we. I initially thought, what can we do? Goodfellas, we've done it as a deep dive previously. Field of Dreams, we did it as Andy needs to see. So it was more a case of like looking for something significant to really stand out and showcase what he can do. And there's such a wide range of films out there. Narrowing it down would have been immensely hard, but Copland has been on my radar for a while. I had not seen this film since 1997, and I can't believe it's that old. It still feels as though it's one of those films I saw within the last 10, 15 years, because there is a timeless quality to this. It starred Sylvester Stallone as the sheriff of a small New Jersey town who comes into conflict with the corrupt New York City police officers who live in that community. This was the second feature from James Mangold, who has now gone on to do The Fantastic Logan and is currently in post-production with the next Indiana Jones film. A very talented filmmaker who brought us a very interesting cop film. So we said that we, uh, we, we look for something to talk about Ray Liotta. Before I mention at least uh, Sylvester Stallone's performance, what made you think of uh, using this particular film, Andy? Well, like I said, Copland's been on my radar to maybe use as a deep dive because I've not revisited this film myself since the late 90s. It's one of those films that I wanted to see if it holds up. And this was the first film that came to mind for me just thinking, what other Ray Liotta films stand out for me? It was like, Copland, he delivers quite a tormented character within this one. He's one of the corrupt cops, but he can't, he's kind of regretting being involved in that corruption. And it's a great role that you get to see him portray. Like He has loss. He has great tragedy in there. And he has a redemptive arc as well. And so you get to see kind of the best of what he brought to every support role. Because it is basically one of the support roles that he does. But he lifts the film by his very presence in it. And that's why Copland, I think, is a great example to talk about and showcase Ray Liotta's impact on the world of cinema. Uh, this film, even though it's set in uh, a contemporary time, is is basically uh, an urban western. This has lots of tropes that you would find in a uh, in, in a western movie: a small town sheriff defending a small community. Uh, and, and the interesting take on this is that the community in this case is a community of uh, New York City cops. And Stallone is fabulous in this. I've always thought that Stallone is a fantastic character actor trapped in the body of a leading man. And when you go back and you look at Rocky, for me, it's still his, his most spot-on performance because it was pure performance that yeah. Stallone does these character parts 
so so well playing against type in this he bulked up threw on weight uh he's he's heavy he's out of shape it is pure pure performance and he, it's such a standout uh, a standout role when you're up against people like Ray Liotta and Harvey Keitel uh, and it's uh it's that dynamic of him being an actor rather than being a star I think the film is a little bit bloated there's a lot of plot and, and a lot of running time and uh at, at times it it meanders when it should it should pick up the pace but it's an interesting take on that sort of modern day western yeah i mean this could quite easily have been a leone man with no name style tale character of freddy played by stallone observing and trying to remain neutral to whatever all the corruption around him but slowly being drawn into the escalating situation very akin to the best of the western genre i actually feel that there should be more to this film the story and characters that we see are strong enough, but there never feels like there's any scale to the proceedings. Yeah. And whilst we're told that the town is a copland, it feels like we're missing a number of supporting characters to really establish it as one, as we're only focusing on this handful of key characters. The minor support that we do get, Gian Garofalo and Noah Emmerich, for example, feels like they could have been offered a bit more depth, especially Garofalo, whose character seems to have an interesting, new, fresh approach to the corruption within here, but Dev doesn't really get to play out. And you just get the feeling that some stuff was just chopped down and it kind of makes the film suffer slightly for it. We needed a bit more depth to flesh out the dynamics of the town a bit more. But much as like other crime dramas of the time, we are focused on the few. And the few that we're focused on, man, we talk, we talk often about like names, like a cast list that you just die for. You've got such a cast in this. You've got Harvey Keitel, who was going through a, mod, a resurgence at the time that this came out with films like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn and The Piano. You've got Robert De Niro, you've got Liotta, you've got Robert Patrick, Peter Berg, Noah Emmerich, Frank Vincent, Edie Falco, Gian Garofalo, and Michael Rappaport. Michael Rappaport, who it must be noted, at this era in his film career, always seemed to play the bumbling person who sets everything yeah, in motion. Yeah. But with such strong names in this lineup, it is stellar that Stallone keeps the attention and he always dominates each screen with a very subdued performance. At this point in his career, Stallone had a presence on screen with big, generic blockbusters, fun, but forgettable mostly, or terrible comedies. And he'd not, not really shown the early acting potential that he had with like First Blood and Rocky. And even both of those franchises have become a mockery of what they previously were. But for Copland, like you said, he gained weight to portray a less physical character and really delivers a very nuanced character. The internal conflict that he's got when trying to decide between the friends in the force who he knows are corrupt and doing the right thing. And it's a character study. It's a character journey. You can tell that Mangold is still finding his feet as a director. Because yeah. some moments work, some moments don't work. If one moment works better than anything else, it's the death shootout. Yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, we, we didn't point out that the um, the character is, uh, is hearing is impaired. And that the shootout is, um, is, a, is a solid piece of work. And you see that confidence of a director who is, you know, just a few years from from then going to be at the top of his game. So there was a, a it was an interesting place for him and, and to see where he, he's gone as a director. I think what's interesting for me with this is the duality between the character of Freddie, the character that Stallone plays and um, mm. where Stallone is, as you mentioned, in his in his own career at that time, because it's uh, it's about characters looking for their own potential. 
and Stallone looking for potential. I think I would like to have seen Stallone do more movies where he wasn't playing the lead role that we expect. He wasn't a leading man and he was a, a character actor. But, you know, he went back to the expandable movies and, and could have and could have taken a very, very different slant in his uh, in, in his work after this because he did show that he had the, the acting chops for it. Yeah. The sad thing about this is that when Stallone did it, he made the film thinking it would be a way to showcase him for a different kind of approach in films. He would get different kind of offers. But the film didn't really perform as well at the box office as they expected. It made profit. It was a low-budget film, so it made profit. But it really didn't set the box office alight. It just never found an audience. No one could quite work out why, because all the names involved in it were on career highs at that point in time. But it just didn't generate that footfall. It's It was a film that was warmly but not strongly received at the time. Yeah. And you said that it's kind of timeless, that even though it's contemporary setting, it's still relevant today. I want to add in the word, sadly, it's still relevant today. Yes. Because the themes of police corruption are very prominent. And some of the elements of the, what the corruption is covering up in this are hugely relevant to today. And it's a sad, sad thing that something that was relevant to what happened with the LA riots, etc. in the 90s is still relevant today because we as a society haven't learned from our sins of the past. It's a really solid film. It is flawed, but the flaws don't undermine the central performance and the support performances as everyone delivers their finest that you can get. No one's trying to battle each other. No one's trying to hog the screen time. Everyone lets their characters shine how they're supposed to shine. Or, you know, most most of them are corrupt, so it's, it's not really shining, but you get what I mean. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an oddity that's well worth checking out, this series. I love, yeah. don't mean to do any disservice to it, because I think it uh, it was a film that when I saw, I enjoyed an awful lot. And, and part of that enjoyment was... Stallone's um, acting in it, 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 it took him to mm. a different level. I know he looks back on it with sort of, um, he looks back on it in a, in a mixed way, but um, I'd, yeah. that'd have been interesting where he goes. He's got fondness for what he did with it, but he's got disappointment in the fact that it didn't, it didn't push his career in a new direction like he hoped it would. If you're interested in watching Copland, and you should watch it, if not for seeing a director who's really, really proved himself to be uh, an A-list director, then watch it for the for the great cast. And, of course, watch it for Ray Liotta. Andy, where can we find Copland if we do want to watch it? Uh, if you have a hunt round on rental services online, uh, it's, I watched it through um, Apple TV service. Uh, with a, It was £3.49 to rent, so well worth checking out. Finding it on other services at this point in time was a bit hit and miss. So just have a look around. And if you can't find it on a streaming service, then you can pick up the DVD or Blu-ray, quite reasonably priced on all the usual retailers, where you'd also get the commentary and also a couple of deleted scenes that are even more significant to current society. We may be back again next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for our reviews. And boy, have we got a mixed bag of reviews for you this week. I would say there's something for everyone, wouldn't you, Andy? Oh, yes. It's a, it's a wide variety. So, Andy, do you want to get the ball rolling? And you may as well go for the big guns. Or should I say the top guns? So, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, then. Yeah. <laughs> so, Top Gun Maverick. Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. You were here at the request of Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage the expectations. 
Let's make something clear from the offset. I like the original Top Gun, but not to the degree that many others seem to worship it. Even on its initial release, I thought it was okay, but that's about it. While school buddies at the time were obsessed. So on that basis, I wasn't really hyped for this sequel, but was interested to see it, particularly because Joseph Kaczynski knows how to deliver on visual thrills, as demonstrated in Tron Legacy and Oblivion, and Tom Cruise is generally one worth watching for thrills and spectacle. The reviews then started flooding out two weeks ago, gushing over the film, some marking it as the best film of 2022, and they built up hopes with comments saying it was better than the original, or that you don't have to see or like the original to enjoy this film. And sadly, for me, that wasn't the case. I found the film to rank just as highly as the first. It's enjoyable, but not the high-octane thrill ride others are feeling. Don't get me wrong, there's elements of this film handled so much better than the original. Story, for example, the original film was very slapdash story-wise. Top fighter pilots recruited to prove their worth and be the best of the best. And then they throw in a random mission at the end. Add melodrama and 80s rock tracks. Boom, there you've got your film. Now the story feels a bit more thought through. With the new bunch of flying aces are being specifically trained for a deadly mission that will test all their abilities. There's a reason for the training that isn't just a competition to see who's the best. There's melodrama again, this time the emotional burden that Maverick has carried over the decades through feeling responsible for Goose's death and how he further tried to stop Goose's son from following his father's path. But overall, the general story is pretty much a retread of what we've already seen in the first film. The team train. Accidents occur. Conflict arises between the group, which adds pressure, and then a mission at the end that heals any broken bonds. But... What about the action? After all, one factor that audiences loved in the original was the jet fights themselves. And here, they are ramped up even higher and feel more real with huge impact from the big screen and the booming speakers. The thrill is high whenever an engine fires to life and you feel the force of each aerial manoeuvre as they happen. It looks as polished and stunning as you would expect from Kaczynski and will certainly appeal to the action-hungry fans out there. The inclusion of Val Kilmer is well handled and offers an element of poignant reflection, not just on his character of Iceman, but also on the actor himself. It adds a layer of heart to the journey of Maverick as he finally starts to reconcile the demons from his past that have held him back for decades. But overall, it is just a Top Gun film and how much you enjoy it will depend entirely on how much you enjoyed the first film. A good sequel that seems to rely on the nostalgia a little too much and new audiences may be confused as some elements as a result, much as they did with the recent Ghostbusters Afterlife, only that film actually seemed to draw on the nostalgia for the right reasons. This film does it, sometimes, for what seems to be pure lazy reasons. It's fun, but far from the shining glory that we've been led to believe. So I've yet to see this, and I do really want to see it. I'm, I'm very interested to see this. But do you think it's garnering the great reviews because of the nostalgia factor? or for people who weren't around when Top Gun first appeared, because let's be honest, who really ever wanted a Top Gun sequel, that this is uh, a, a kind of filmmaking that's that's bravado filmmaking? It's pure bravado filmmaking. The reviews that are gushing over it being better than the original, it's not. The review, I think there's, there is a huge nostalgia factor in there, and it is the people who have grown up loving the original film 
who are going in and loving this. And no doubt, if you liked or loved whatever you thought of the original Top Gun, you will love this one for exactly the same reasons. I thought the original Top Gun was okay. It was enjoyable. And I think that this is okay. It's enjoyable. But it's nothing more. So moving on to a film that I really do want to see. I'm really looking forward to finally sitting down and watching this. Jackass 4.5? No, funny (laughs) enough, no. (laughs) Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers that landed on Disney Plus this week. There's only one crime-fighting team that can solve this case. We're not real detectives. Ready the battering ram. How cliche. Sometimes this place is pretty shady. I have my own way of tracking people. Wow. What is wrong with you? Is this a remix of the Disney Afternoon theme song? Slap. I am huge fanboy. <laughs> Disney's Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Ready PGA. Now streaming. A live action and animated hybrid comedy directed by Akiva Schaefer and featuring the voice of fellow Lonely Island member Andy Samberg, Chip and Dale is packed with meta comedy and cameos throughout that it will take a couple of viewings to spot everything that's going on. Ever since the cartoon of Chip and Dale was cancelled in 1990, the pair fell out and have gone their separate ways. Chip is now an insurance salesman, whilst Dale tried to launch a solo career and now does the convention circuits in an attempt to make a revival. But when their old co-star, Monterey Jack, calls them in desperation, when his cheese addiction has led to trouble with the Valley Gang, the pair are forced to reunite and solve the case of missing tunes and the links with the bootleg movie industry. The voice cast draws from a solid number of names. John Mulaney is Chip, playing alongside Sam Bergsdale, and they're joined by Will Arnett, Eric Banner, Keegan-Michael Key, Seth Rogen, and the ever-excellent J.K. Simmons as a claymation police captain. Kiki Lane is the human element as LAPD rookie Ellie Steckler, who's assigned to the case. And around all the key characters, there's a wealth of cameos from across the animated industry, as well as a few choice film posters mocking the reboot industry with some notable Hollywood names. I won't go into much detail because the fun of this film is in the surprise cameos it throws out and discovering them yourself as you watch. The end result is a film that is a celebration of animation through the ages whilst also being a satire about the state of modern-day movie industry, churning out reboots and sequels, or reacting to fan culture too much. The movie has a very Roger Rabbit feel to it, and knows this very well. A very early moment makes it clear that this is what they intended to tap into. This is a fun family offering that certainly delivers to all ages. Chippendale Rescue Rangers is only let down by being a Disney Plus exclusive, a film that looks this great feels somewhat diminished on the small screen. I heard a podcast where the writers were talking about this film and their approach to this uh, a couple of weeks before the film premiered. And boy, I knew at that point that I wanted to see it. So waiting for that family film moment where we can sit and watch this as a family because it does look like an awful lot of fun. Is it, is it recommended for everyone, Andy? Is it, or is it uh, yes. uh, just for the small ones? Uh, everyone can get this. Whether you are a a four-year-old who will just lap up the fun that's going on or a 49-year-old like myself who will get all the movie references, who will notice all the characters hidden in the background, who will get all the satire. It plays to all levels, but without focusing specifically on one level. And finally, a film you can review wonderfully, I'll never get to see. Jackass 4.5. Edited moments and unseen stunts are often releases in these 0.5 editions, and this time Netflix had the rights to it, giving us this slice of fun 
with some unseen crazy moments that you can kind of see why they were removed. However, in between the about 40 minutes of footage, it's padded out with something that makes this essential viewing for the fans of the series of films, and maybe even for those who never really got the popularity. Because in amongst the outtakes, this edition has interviews and behind-the-scenes footage to show why the gang got back together again, and how the new faces added were chosen, as well as how the lockdown impacted on production. It gleans an insight into the true friendship and bonding that the team have had over the years, from Knoxville and the other performers in front of the camera, to the tech and support around them. Forget Fast and Furious, this is the true family on film. And even though we often see them attacking and mocking each other, there appears to be a genuine love between all the team that makes Jackass work so well. The interviews are engaging, insightful, and very often amusing too. And they really make for an interesting perspective on the franchise that keeps returning and keeps delivering. This is well worth checking out. So on TV, landing this week, well, it was the series that we didn't think that we wanted. And you and I actually said, is yep. this necessary? I've only seen episode one. I believe you've seen both episodes that landed on Disney Plus this week. And of course, we're talking about the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Stay hidden. Or we will not survive. The Jedi Code is like an itch. You cannot help it. Where is he? this up with a spoon and thoroughly thoroughly had a great time with it i think this is a star wars series that i've i've wanted to see especially after the lackluster uh, book of boba fett this has got all the stuff that i loved about the mandalorian um but it brings a grittiness and it brings a reason most importantly to talk about obi-wan kenobi and now that ewan mcgregor who still looks a hell of a lot younger than alec guinness did when he was 63 which is going to be another 10 years after this series <laughs> i think the first first episode had a cinematic style and a, and a really strong western style and they made some very very smart plotting ideas ewan mcgregor i think is one of those actors who has just got better with age and has such a screen presence i i'm all in I thought this was was a fantastic opener to hopefully, which will continue to be a, a fantastic series. Do you feel the same? Yes. Um, you know how negative I was on the whole idea of an Obi-Wan series. Like, what are they going to do? Just have them sat on Tatooine watching sand people for 15 years. I mean, it didn't sound exciting. And what they've delivered is something more than what I was expecting. I've seen reviews out there where they've moaned saying it seems to not have much force abilities going on for something about a Jedi. And I think those critics are missing the point. Yeah, absolutely. The Jedi are in hiding. They don't want to use their abilities because it even mentions it in the first episode when the Inquisitor is like trying to track down Jedis. Says that word spreads when something happens word spreads and it spreads fast and that's how they track the jedis always reveal themselves and so obi-wan is in hiding 
he has forgotten to use the force. He has broken away from the force. He's separated from the force. One way that it showcases this is that it mentions in the previously on. And the previously on, what a great way to start it. Yes. I, actually, I'll tell you what, uh, with that, Andy, it almost made me think how great the, the prequels were because the previously on were better than the <laughs> films that I yes. saw. It took edited highlights from Star Wars Episode 1, 2, and 3 to use the backstory to get you to where he's at now. And it finishes with Yoda saying, um, I will train you to be able to um, speak with your master through the, as a Force ghost. But he can't because he's separated himself from the Force. And that's important because I think that's going to play a theme across the whole series that he's going to slowly start to use the Force again as he feels that he needs to use it. I loved how somber it was at times. Yeah, and this is a character who's suffering, who killed his own student and uh, brutally saw that that character um, be stripped away in front of him, uh, both physically and, and morally. Uh, and and he's a broken man. I love that. There was a, a touch of a touch of shame about it. Yeah. I think now that that Ewan McGregor's got on, uh, got older, he had that look in his eyes of a man who, who who's broken. The, the scene in the first episode where he couldn't face the other Jedi and, yeah. and refused to help him. It, I thought was was uh, we'd not seen this in Star Wars. We've not seen people on the uh, after the the initial war being broken individuals, being scarred by what happened. I, I thought that it was a really, really interesting place to to, to meet Ben Kenobi. Not, not the cleverest of disguises, but I, <laughs> I, I thought it was a, a, a really, really bold move and, and so well done. Yep, it, it was nice to also have the juxtaposition to see how Leia has been raised within the palace and Alderaan. Yeah, we finally get to see Alderaan. And you get to see her rebellious spirits. And what a great child actress that yeah. she truly, within minutes of her being on screen, it was like, that's Carrie Fisher. Yes. That's Princess Leia. She's got everything down, the smile, the mannerisms, everything is, that is a perfect bit of casting. And obviously you've got the magnificent Jimmy Smits um, reprising his role as Bail Organa. And I love the relationship that we're starting to see build between him and Leia, that he knows she's got the rebellious streak and he kind of likes that, but he has to be the dad and he has to say, no, no, you shouldn't do that. So what are we going to do instead? But well done. I'm glad that you did it. And I love that building that we're seeing. And we're seeing world building on two different aspects. One of the complaints that I had when this was going into production was like, we've seen Tatooine far too much. We need to see something more. And by flipping to follow Leia's story, and that's what draws Obi-Wan back out of hiding, gets us to see some more planets within the systems and allows it to be grander in scope. And I think that this is not only so far my favourite of the Star Wars TV series, I think it's my favourite Star Wars yeah. since Empire Strikes Back came out. It's a perfect piece of, of uh, connective tissue, for one, yeah. of, a, of a better way. I mean, we look back on those on the prequels, and they, they are disappointing. They were flat, even though they were uh, spectacular. They didn't have a soul. This brings back that kind of uh, realism and, and natural earthiness of, of the original trilogy, uh, mixed with that that despair that Ewan McGregor's playing in Obi-Wan, yeah. and it makes perfect sense, you know? And I thought, I thought the idea of... of of him doing something by having to go and look after Leia 
as opposed to uh, always keeping his eye out for Luke, took the story in, a, in an unexpected uh, direction. I can't wait to see where this series goes. I know you've seen episode two. I will be yeah. probably as soon as we finished recording this. And I think it's quite bold where they're going. Of course, we know we've got Vader to come. So I'm definitely in. I'm interested to see the how the characters of the Inquisitors get drawn upon as well, because even though it's not specifically mentioned, I'm pretty sure that at least one of them is one of those younglings from the opening sequence. Oh, good, good point. Um, and I I think that's what, because there's one Inquisitor in particular who seems to have a vendetta against Obi-Wan, and I think that she was one of the younglings, and she sees that he let her down by not being there to protect her. There's clearly a reason why her objective is to bring in Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. So that's currently streaming weekly on Disney+. Plus. Um, before we wrap up the reviews, uh, I'm quickly going to mention that Stranger Things Season 4 landed. I'm one episode in. Interesting. There's, it's The thing about Stranger Things is, and we've talked about nostalgia many times on this, there's always that, that sense of nostalgia to Stephen King and John Carpenter and, and 80s movies. And um, it's always a welcome return. And we know that it's going to be, we're going to be split into two. And this will be the end of, of Stranger Things. So it picks up of the events, the Starcourt Mal battle and the upheaval of the Byers uh, family moving out to the West Coast uh, and the kids still at Hawkins dealing with having seen some of their peers and friends meet gruesome ends. And there's a new a much more terrifying mythical monster on the scene. Um, the only downside to this is that they've extended each episode from its usual 50 minutes into basically an hour and 15 minutes. Now, it was great to see all the cast who've grown tremendously over the last few years since this series started in 2015, uh, which has been a bit of a joy seeing them grow up and explaining that they're growing up. But the extended running time made certainly the first episode feel flabby. A lot of catching up with the characters, a lot of seeing what's happened to their lives since the last series. And I think it would have had an hour episode or a 50 minutes episode. And certainly in the one that I've seen, we would have had a stronger opening episode. But I'm in with Stranger Things and I'm, I've been a fan from the start and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. But if you're interested, Stranger Things back on Netflix and all the episodes, unlike Kenobi, have dropped all at once. So anything uh, coming out this week, Andy, that we should be aware of? It's a pretty quiet time at the cinema again. This is what we were saying earlier, is that cinemas, the content isn't coming out thick and fast. However, Alex Garland's Men does arrive at cinemas this week. Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear. Alex Garland's scripting and directing. I'm in. Of course yep. I'm in. Now TV and Sky. I might revisit this, Matrix Resurrections. Wasn't that impressed with it on the big screen? No. Might be one to revisit and see whether it works a bit better on second viewing because the expectation was too high for this one. So it's on my agenda to give it another shot and just see maybe it just underwhelmed based on expectation. On Netflix, there's a film called Interceptor, which uh, is an action adventure which sees a tough, experienced army captain, J.J. Collins, switched out from her dream military job at the Pentagon to be the commander of a lone nuclear missile. And then, hey, it gets attacked and she has to try to stop the invading mercs who are trying to take over the base. I was interested for about two minutes of that. <laughs> <laughs> it just turns generic, doesn't it? Uh, but the interesting one for me on this next week is Hustle. 
and this is an Adam Sandler film, and you know that if I say that an Adam Sandler film is on my radar, there's something that about it that stands stands out for me. It's another one where it's not a comedy; it's a it's a drama. He's a down on his luck baseball scout who discovers a preternaturally gifted player with a checkered pass and tries to bring him to the states without the team's approval. Against all odds, they have to prove they have what it takes. So it's a sports drama with Adam Sandler in it. I'm in. I like Adam Sandler, the actor. I just don't like Adam Sandler, the comedian. I'm with you. Over on Amazon, The Boys Season 3. Yeah, looking forward to that one. The uh, uh, the trailers look good. Did you see the trailer for um, Dawn of the Seven? Yes. Yes. Certain A certain cult had fun with that one. Didn't know whether they were... <laughs> I'm sure uh, they did. They were being uh, uh, laughed at or, or honoured. <laughs> uh, they were being laughed at. Um, <laughs> and on Disney+, Plus on the 8th, Ms. Marvel lands... Like I said earlier, the early reviews are very positive. So this is one that I am hugely, hugely looking forward to. And that's it for this week's show. So thank you for joining us. But before we go, and as ever, it's time for our neat things. Stuff that Andy and I have done, watched, enjoyed over the last week, or even over the last two weeks. Andy, what's your neat thing? So over the last two weeks, I've not actually found any downtime to do anything i've not played video games i've watched literally three movies over the last two weeks you talk this is someone who watches two films a day has only watched three over the past few weeks i've not caught up on tv shows i've not read any comics i've not read any books i haven't listened to an audio book what have i done well i've worked at a cinema in banbury and whilst i've been down there i've had to eat obviously so this neat thing is specific to the Banbury area. And all I'm going to say is if you get a chance to go down to Oxfordshire for anything, head on over to Banbury and go to a pub called the Old Auctioneer because it's a marvellous pub, really got a rustic kind of internal feel. It feels like a a proper, like, you know, a genuine classic pub and they do marvellous food. The atmosphere there is amazing, but the food, they do wings, chicken wings, sticky or barbecue or hot and spicy in half or full kilo options. Um, they have uh, special days where you can get two lots of wings for the price of one. They do burgers. They do ribs. Everything that they've I've eaten there so far, I've delighted in and thought was perfect. And I'm over this next few months, I'm going to work through all their menu and I'm going to be able to report on my five-star ratings on everything. First night that we went there, we were thinking, eh, do we get dessert as well? So I was like, yeah, let's get dessert. So we asked the lass who was uh, serving us, okay, uh, desserts, what do you recommend? And straight off the bat, without even thinking, she went, Toblerone cheesecake. It's the best cheesecake that you'll ever eat. And I was like, whoa, you're confident? It was like, absolutely. That's a absolutely very bold statement. That you're going to love it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to hold you to that. Because if, if this isn't the best cheesecake that I ever have, I might be complaining. She got a tip because, man, the Toblerone cheesecake was to die for. Absolutely delicious. So the service, spot on. The staff clearly know what they're talking about. They clearly enjoy the food as much as the customers do. And that's what everyone should do when you work in a venue. You should actually, you should, it should actually be obvious that you enjoy what you're selling. And she clearly had eaten various elements of the food and knew what to recommend us based on what her tastes were. And it's just a really, it's got to become my regular haunt there for eating. 
pretty much every night and I'm going to put on so much weight because everything's so nice. So if you're ever in the Banbury area, it's Banbury in Oxfordshire. That's the UK. So people in Utah, jump on the plane, fly over. <laughs> Birmingham International, you'll fly in through, jump on the train about 40 minutes out from there. <laughs> so I'm giving you directions. Um, the old auctioneer pub. That's my neat thing. Fantastic. So when I come down to see you, I guess that's where we're going to be eating then. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Uh, my neat thing is based on the back of a sad thing. We bid farewell to the Foo Fighters drummers recently, uh, Taylor Hawkins, who, who sadly left us. However, run over to YouTube when you finish listening to this to see uh, performing live in concert at the Stade de France on the outskirts of Paris, the Rocking 1000, who brought together 1000 musicians uh, to dedicate my hero to the iconic drummer. So the Rocking 1000 have previously called themselves the biggest rock band on earth due to their, well, there's a thousand of them. It's that simple. You you might recognize them from Eurovision 2022, where the gigantic band opened for uh, uh, the program with a, a musical extravaganza with a performance of Give Peace a Chance. Well, they turned their attention to saying, uh, a, a fond and sad farewell to to what appears to be such a, a loved and likable guy uh, and somebody who's sadly uh, no longer with us and makes you wonder what's going to happen to the to the rest of the band because I don't think they can replace him. So as a sad goodbye to Taylor Hawkins, uh, check out their rendition of My Hero and if you get to the end of it without a tear in your eye, then there's something wrong with you because um, it, there certainly was by the time I'd watched it. And you can find that on YouTube. Uh, and that's it. We're done. We're out of here. Hopefully we'll be back next week. We might not be. But in the meantime, stay safe. Um, back down too. to Banbury for you. When do you go, Andy? Uh, well, we're on a holiday in Wales over this next week. And then I get back from Wales on the Friday and then head straight down to Banbury on Saturday morning. So uh, no time for rest. No rest for the wicked, so they say. But before we go, Andy, there are two kind of people in this world. Pinball people and video game people. But Andy, you're pinball people.